You're listening to A Show of Hearts, the podcast about finding the courage to live a deep and magical life. I'm your host, life coach, Rosemary Pritzker. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Today, I have two super awesome guests who I can't wait to share with you. Sean Barlow and Banning Air are the founders of Afropop Worldwide, a Peabody Award-winning radio show about African music. This year, they're celebrating 30 years of sharing some of the best African and African-inspired music in the world. The beauty of their show is not only in enticing their audiences with fresh, joyful music, but also in providing a rich cultural, historical, and political context and education. Sean and Banning met at Wesleyan, where they both discovered their fervent passion for world music. In this episode, you'll hear about how that led to immersing themselves in the cultures of countless African countries, falling in love with each distinct style of music, then exuberantly sharing it with the world through their show. I was introduced to their work in 2005 when I attended the Afropop Awards Gala. I was blown away by the vibrant community they created around African music and honored to be in the same room with such musical legends as Yusu Ndur and Angelique Kidjo. The potent atmosphere was filled with magic and joy and it opened my heart. Sean, Banning, and Afropop have since become an important part of my life that stoked my enthusiasm for African music while we cultivated our friendship based on shared passion. We've spent a great deal of time together at shows all over New York City and Brooklyn, and at one point I even joined the board of Afropop. When I was interviewing them, Sean joked that I'm probably their most enthusiastic supporter. So I'm very pleased to share this interview of two people who I adore, who have built a lively, kaleidoscopic community and platform that I hold very dear to my heart. When I first sat down with them, I asked Sean and Banning what it meant to them to follow the heart. Well, it goes way back for me because my mother used to use that expression. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were raised in the 60s and my parents were pretty, uh, they were pretty liberal and they, they always sort of had that ethic of, of you should do what you love. I always had this conflict all through my my. Um, you know, formative years of, I loved writing and I loved music. And I realized that both of them were things that you had to dedicate yourself to entirely. So it was always like, which one do I love more? And I never really was able to make that decision. So I still do both. But it, it's, it is what, it is exactly what it sounds like. You, you do what, what pulls you, what, 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 uh, you don't, you don't think about, you know, the practical or, or economic implications, to an extent you do. But in the beginning, I, I was always driven by just 
going the places I wanted to go, pursuing the things I wanted to, playing the music I wanted to play, writing the things. And some of them, a lot of them didn't work, but, you know, I, I still basically operate on that principle. And uh, I had parents with very similar philosophy, and, and it was all about, you know, don't force your kids to do what you want them to do because they'll wind up resenting you and allow them to do uh, what they love to do. And God bless my parents, that's what they, you know, taught us. And, uh, I mean, that I can just trace um, nature. I grew up right on the Potomac River, and I was all up and down the Potomac River all the time as a kid, canoeing, swimming, swing, swimming on vines and so on. And then uh, later on, uh, hiking in the, in, in the big national parks out west, that was my, my passion. Uh, and hitchhiking here, there, and everywhere. But really it was m music that kind of pulled it all together for me. Is, um, I'm not a musician, but I studied music, and I, kind of, I was aware of like some big um, kind of uh, aesthetic principles uh, that guided Javanese, Indian, African music, and so on. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I started doing um, radio, which is a passion for me in, up in Alaska, where I uh, worked as a commercial fisherman and a cold storage worker part-time, and then and travel. I love to travel. That was a big passion of mine. I think I tell all the interns who come here, whatever you do, take time off from school and go traveling. You know, live in Morocco. You know, spend time in an Egyptian monastery. Whatever. You know, like you know, become a an assistant to a game warden in in, in Tanzania. You know, that's the stuff you really learn from. So was there anyone who inspired you when you were a kid who you looked up to? I, yeah, well, I, I would start with my mother. She inspired me a lot artistically. Well, first of all, she played guitar and sang songs. And when she was in college, you know, in the 30s or 40s, she, she, uh, she traveled through Mexico collecting folk songs. And she always had this, this, this idea of, you know, found music. Uh, and that... That that was actually what started me playing guitar, and uh, and and she also made mobile. She was a visual artist, and just just her dedication to creativity just put the whole idea of being an artist in in my mind very clearly. There were many. Another one I would point to would be um, a particular teacher that I had in in high school, who uh, his name was Gilbert Burnett. He was he was British originally. He'd become American, and 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 he'd been in the OSS, which was the precursor of the CIA. And 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 he taught anthropology and biology. And he was just he was very fastidious, very demanding teacher. But he was so incredibly open-minded, and there were so many ideas that I was introduced to as a high school student that really have stuck with me ever since. Just ideas about culture and how culture makes people who they are. Gil was the first person who really, who really talked about culture to me and made me think about it as all the things that you acquire in life and from your surroundings as opposed to things that are, that are just inbred in your genes or in your blood. And that, that distinction, of course, it's a, it's, an, it's a huge ongoing debate in so many disciplines. But, but I, once that idea was in my head, I've tended to think about things in those terms, you know, and how how much of your attitudes, your capabilities, your senses of what's possible, even your emotions and the things that draw you are really 
derive from culture. And, you know, when we started traveling in Africa, there were just so many fascinating examples of that. I mean, as a musician, I always note the way kids in Africa learn about melody and rhythm, especially rhythm, because there's so much dancing and, and so much rhythmic activity. And, and I remember being a young guitarist before I ever went to Africa and being told that the hardest thing for most guitarists is to have good rhythm. And, uh, and I've really noticed it because when I started trying to play African guitar, it was all about, you know, never mind what the notes are, don't drop the time. And that was just so complete. And I realized, okay, this is culture. This is, this is something that I just was not programmed to do. And that I'm having to sort of struggle to kind of rewire my brain to, to operate in this other culture because, because it's really counterintuitive. And I find this all the time when I teach people who are trying to learn African guitar, you just see over and over again how kind of weak the rhythmic training is in our, in our sort of musical pedagogy. It's definitely an afterthought, unless you're a drummer. And, you know, but that's just one example. But there are so many things that, that really are intrinsic to who you are, and they're established so early by the people around you and by the things that you see as just normal. So, Sean, was there anyone that inspired you when you were a kid? Oh, <clears throat> lots of people, but... Um... I'd have to say my older brother, Mark, uh, because he's a really cool guy. You know, he was an actor, a musician. He played uh, in a soul band, funk band, uh, you know, play, performed for Robert F. Kennedy. He just, like, did everything. He, he played basketball. I could not be nearly as cool as he was. He was five years older, right? Isn't he? My brother? Yeah, he's old. Five and a half years old. Yeah. Older, right. Quite a bit older. So, so anyway, and, and he was, in our family, the first one to go to Africa, and, and he came back from, I think, Ghana was the first. And he brought back all sorts of instruments and, and uh, stories, and so he really um, kind of inspired me that way. He went on to become a recording artist under the, uh, his, his artistic name is Marcus James. Um, but I think fast forward to school at Westland, where we both went to, where we met, um, there was a course called uh, Ancient Rites of Initiation and Modern Psychological Therapies. Mm. Wow. And my God, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a room was full of 200 <laughs> kids just busting with, you know, curiosity. And, and so, and so that every, every, every week, or it was Twice a week, I guess, there was lectures and films. And the basic you know, principle wa was uh, uh, the, the journey of the shaman. And people who go beyond their known world and come back to their world to share some of the sacred knowledge that they've gained. It was co-taught by religion and a philosophy and a psychology professor, so right. they were working together. And, you know, that became the imprint for my life. You know? it, it, that's what I did. That's what I'm doing. And uh, so I, I, I really, of course, I had other reasons to do the research and so on, to go to Africa. And, and, uh, but that, I would say, it was very, very, uh, made a huge impression. Our school was really amazing. The religion department was fantastic. The English department was fantastic. The dance department was fantastic. So we, we were liberal artists. We were lucky enough to do some of everything, you know. Uh, and, 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 uh, but that particular course is the one I remember especially. Tell me more about Wesleyan. I'd love to know, like, when, was there a moment that you guys remember meeting each other? Um, I'm not we, sure. I think we sort of, we were in the same class. We knew each other. We, we knew who each other was in, in the early years, but 
we didn't uh, we didn't really become friends till till, like till junior later. year yeah. or something like that. You were on the same hall with one of my best friends from high school, uh, who uh, who I used to visit with, and that was that was a real party hall. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of like angry love. Yeah. <laughs> Sean spoke about the typical college tour that East Coast kids did to schools like Harvard, Amherst, and others. They were all so boring. These places were so boring. And then I drove into Wesley in Middletown, Connecticut, uh, and just parked haphazardly, and I walked across, you know, to the nearest building, looked inside, and there was a gamelan, a full-out gamelan. It's a Javanese uh, tradition. It's an orchestra. It's an orchestra, orchestra, but it looks like pots and pans. It can look like that to the untrained eyes. And big gongs, and, uh, uh, and we, Wesleyan, brought it back from the New York World's Fair in 1964 because the Indonesians are, what are we going to do? We're not going to ship the gamelan back to Indonesia. Who wants to buy it? And Wesleyan said, we'll buy it. <laughs> and so, but, but that was just one place uh, uh, activity in the World Music Hall. And, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, this place is different. This, is, this place has West African drummer and dance masters, teachers, has Indian singing masters, you know. I mean, Wesley, and one of the reasons, and the reason that that gamelan was there, I mean, Wesley was actually the first American university to offer a, a PhD in ethnomusicology. So it was really, it was really a hub for people who were interested in international music. And really great artists came through. They had incredible performances of Indian music and and um, Indonesian and African, and just just so many so many mind blowing things were happening. But I was really determined to be a writer at that point. I, I was an English major, and I had a very great professor, another person who inspired me, um, Phyllis Rose, and and she in the freshman writing class basically told the class, look. If any of you are here because you're thinking about your career, you know, you might want to think again because the only thing you can do with being a writer is to become an English teacher like me and you'll never make any money. And she was like very much saying that this is not a good thing to do if you're career oriented. And I, having been raised with this whole sort of follow your heart ethic, you know, was undissuaded by that. But the weird thing is it turned out not to be true because one of the only things that I've ever done that did make money (laughs) was writing. So... (laughs) Yeah, but it seemed, you talked earlier about um, having these two passions and never being able to pick one of the two, mm-hmm. writing, writing and music, but it seems to me like you've combined them. Yes, in, in well, that's, ways, that's sort know? of what the Afropop career has allowed, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After graduating, Sean went to Alaska to work in the commercial fishing industry. <laughs> I had the naive notion that you could go up to Alaska and make money. A lot of kids... That's not true? Well, eventually, <laughs> first you have to learn the trade, you know. It's, fishing is a difficult trade. So first year, you know, I didn't really make a lot of money, um, but I made a lot of good friends, and I, I, it was my first experience with radio because there was a, there was a KCAW, uh, Raven Radio, was literally the month I got there in Sitka, Alaska. That's the southeastern Alaska. Went on the air, playing way too much Irish music. <laughs> 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 because the programming people were all Irish music fiends. Uh, fiends. But anyway, um, uh, so I had this mixed experience of learning radio and getting to do my world music program for, for the first time and making some money, making friends. And uh, uh, it was you know uh, appealing enough that I went came back the, the second year 
and I, I did much better, kind of learn new things on the radio, and I earned enough money that I could, I could actually travel around the world one way. I traveled around the world one way for eight months for $6,000. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was 83, 84. And uh, China, was, China was really cheap. Oh, okay. It was when you were. I was, not yet? I was one. I was born That's in China. Okay. There you go. You missed, you missed a great era there, Rose. Um, but um, so, anyway, so that, that, the focus uh, for that was a radio project in Madras, or Chennai, as we say now, South India. And I did a four part series on the Carnatic music tradition. Everything, you know, engineering, voicing, writing, marketing. I just did everything uh, up at my little station in Alaska. And so I learned, you know, some things I was good at and some things I was maybe not so good at. <laughs> like, I didn't good have to, to know early on. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> like, you know, I was okay as a, as a you know, voice, voiceover person, but I wanted, you know, people who were better than me, you know. And, and uh, so the, I earned enough that, that season to... Um, go to this time to uh, Ghana, Cameroon, and uh, Congo. At the time, we called it, uh, or it was called Zaire, under um, Mobutu Seseseku. And that was just such a mind-blowing experience because I had you know, studied uh, West African music in, in college. I had seen King Senia Day perform live in 83 in California, which like, whoa, that is a... Uh, a mother of a, of, a, of, a, of a big band with four guitars and five dancers. And like, that really kind of mo- opened my eyes to like, what uh, contemporary African music was and how, how much I loved it. No one was paying me, really. I mean, there, I, was, I was not on an assignment in West Africa and, and Congo. It was, it was all my own earnings. But Ghana I loved, you know, uh, especially the, the, the traditional culture was still very rich there. The high-life bands were kind of kind of faded away a bit, but there were still some high-life artists who were cool. And Cameroon was, uh, remember uh, Makosa and Bikutsi? That was really hot in, in, in African music, in like uh, especially Paris and uh, elsewhere in the mid-'80s. But really, the mother load was Kinshasa, because Kinshasa was uh, the most musical city I'd ever been in my life. And... Uh, you go out at, at midnight to to see your first band. You, you wind up around, they call it Jusqu'à l'aube, up until dawn, Jusqu'à l'aube. And so you might see two or three bands at night, and and every band had like particular dance routines. And uh, uh, my God, the, the, the level of, you know, unison singing, high male unison singing, was, and harmonies. And harmonies was extraordinary. The level of guitarship was extraordinary. And, and the rhythm section was fantastic, too. I kind of bumped into, after interviewing him, and this guy by the name of Franco, uh, who is grand uh, artist, singer, composer, band leader, legendary figure. I went to his house, and uh, his house is like a furniture showroom. You know, it was beautiful furniture, and his garage had like about eight luxury cars in it. And I, I learned out, you know, Mercedes, Renaults, this or that. 
I learned that he didn't. He when when one of his composers, the bandsman, uh, composed a hit song, he didn't pay him. He gave him a car, so, <laughs> <laughs> which is not bad. You know, to get a Mercedes okay. for a hit song. Um, <laughs> and uh, but you know, but he was a bit of a control freak too. Oh yeah. Anyways, uh, so so the the kind of um, a kind of seminal moment for me was. There I, I was in a, this little divey bar in Kinshasa, and this guy turns to me. And I said, oh, my God, it's Franco. He's wearing a beret, and Franco's a big guy, like 300 pounds, and uh, deep voice. I had interviewed him, so he knew who I was. I was an American journalist, and so on and so on. And, and uh, he turned to me and said, to we, we Zionians, we know uh, Arita Franklin, James Brown, Otis Redding, but you, Americans, you know nothing of our music. Why? And it was this like cry from the heart that just like pierced my heart. Because he was right, of course. Yeah. All this phenomenal, this is the best music in Africa. And why was it so little known in the world? And, and that's and more than 10 years after the rumble in the jungle when they, that was all supposed to be thrown open by that big festival they had. And, didn't happen, so he was frustrated. He was very frustrated, and he, he and he wasn't speaking about me not knowing, because obviously I was there and I was learning. He was talking about me representing Americans. And I said to him, like, oh, Franco, you're right. You're so right. This is really this is a bad situation. I'll, I'll try to do something about it. I think I said <laughs> something like that. And you did. I did, yeah. This came through. But, but anyway, um, and then the, 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 the next time, and I went to Africa. I invited uh, Banning to come with me uh, as a co-producer, and we also went uh, to uh, uh, Kinshasa. Uh, so that, that just drew us back. You can't just name the names of the stars at that moment we were there: Pepe Kale, Papa Wemba, um, uh, Tabu Tabule. I mean, just so many brilliant artists. And uh, unfortunately, you know, because we have recordings. You can actually listen to these artists. Yeah, there's a lot. Of a them lot of them are dead, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, uh, anyways, uh, there's always new artists coming up. So, so we really were on a roll at that point. Actually, we were funded. We we had gotten funding from um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So I came back from this trip, you know, saying, "Oh, I, maybe I could put together a little 13-part series or whatever." And the and the the big dog at CPB the, in the radio program, Rick Madden. Rest in peace. Um, he said to me, well, Sean, uh, kind of sternly, um, the panel listened to your demo tape, and um, we think that 13 programs is not enough. We want 52. <laughs> and I go, whoa. I said, well, I'd have to go back several times to do the research to Africa. He says, do it. He says, do you have an accountant? No. Find one. Do you have a computer? No. Buy one. You know, it's like, shh, you know, basically gear up it's really on. quickly. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we were, st- we were on we were Can you imagine? This would never happen today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and in retrospect, you know, this is, this is in the wake of Graceland, you know, God bless Paul Simon. And then we were kind of at the right place at the right time. And uh, we had the right concept, you know, and, 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 and of course, mostly the music was so powerful. Um, and unknown. Yeah. And that's the point of public broadcasting, isn't it? To introduce people to new things to for their aesthetic enjoyment and for their spiritual consideration. I mean, uh, I don't think there's enough kind of sense, well, don't get me going now about 
my sense. But anyways, there was more openness to, uh, amongst program directors too, you know. And public radio, what used to be a lot more open to allowing their viewers and their listeners to learn new things and explore new things as opposed to just be titillated. <laughs> well, but somehow Afropop has managed to exist. Yes, somehow. Yes. For like around 30, 30 years. years now? Yes, yeah. yes. That's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. It is yeah, amazing. It was 30 years ago, this, this right now, that I made my first trip, Sean's second yeah. trip to, uh, to Africa. 87. What other <laughs> music show is there that's lasted that long? I mean, especially one that's about other cultures, you know? I, th- I don't think there story. is any other show, really. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Yeah, no, that's true. So yeah. what you created was entirely unique. Yep. Right. Early on, they decided to change the name from Afropop to Afropop Worldwide to include a focus on the African diaspora's influence on music in places like Cuba, Brazil, the American South, and countless others. And over time, they became more and more deeply involved in the music scene in New York City. Can you talk more about why it was so important to you to share that music and that culture with the world? Just the music was so great. I mean, like, okay, let's say Bikutsi in, uh, or Makosa, let's say, Makosa in Cameroon. It's just this magical, complicated uh, pop music that, that uh, wasn't that well known beyond Africa and Europe. And then, of course, Congo. We talked about the Congo as, as being so, uh, the music being so phenomenally uh, powerful. Uh, and, but it was more than just the music being cool and fun and so on. It's also that there's a lot of stories. You know, music is always associated with the story. And, and, and so Franco had a story, you know, and you can play his music, but we are right there in his living room recording his story. And so we got that kind of uh, firsthand chance to uh, record people's, um, you know, the story of their lives. And, and uh, I think everywhere, but musicians in Africa, certainly, they want to be known in America. Because why? Well, they grew up listening to James Brown and funk and so on, and, and more recent generations, hip-hop and so on. So if, if they know our music, why, doesn't, why don't we... It's, a, it's the old story of Franco. And, and so, so we are basically just serving that bridge function. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important about what Afropop's done, and right from the beginning, is to just present an alternative view of Africa from the one that's in the news, which is, as we know, focused usually on disease and war and starvation and various things like that. And the big aha moment I had was when I was living in New Mexico and I saw a Cora player from, from West Africa, and I felt this really strong connection between the kind of rhythms and melodies and finger style stuff that he was doing on the Cora, a lot of it sounded like American folk music to me. He was from Gambia. It might have been Fodi Musasuso. But for me, one of the things that I've really felt a really strong mission for in, in working with Afropop is making Americans understand how connected this music is. Not only the way they reflect back funk and R&B and hip-hop to us, but the way they hear blues and Cuban music and other American forms and and feel and see themselves in it. And then and then seeing how how that is explained through history, you know, where 
where did the African Americans who came here come from? And what did they bring with them? And what did they bring with them that then became sort of the DNA of of, of our folk music. And then so sometimes I think of some of the modern forms of, you know, folk pop in, in, in West Africa and Central Africa, especially, and our music, they're like twins separated at birth, you know, is the, the image that I always use because there's this mysterious connection that you can never completely understand because, because the history was never well recorded. I mean, there are these murky centuries that go by that we don't really know exactly how all these forms came together. But you look at something like the banjo, which is clearly originated from an African model. The original ones were gourds. They had no frets. They had the high string in the thumb position, all these basic, the finger-picking style. But through the history of minstrelsy, the banjo became very stigmatized, and, and African Americans didn't really want to play the banjo very much anymore. They moved to the guitar, and the banjo becomes part of bluegrass. And So just in a fairly short period of time, less than 100 years, it goes from being a distinctly African instrument played by African Americans to being a very white-identified instrument to the point where when scholarship started coming out about this, all these banjo aficionados were saying, no, that's impossible, you know, this is not an African instrument. And there was a lot of bickering and fighting about that, even in academic circles. Now it's accepted, but, but it's just one example of how so much of Africa is infused into our culture that we don't necessarily recognize. And music provides a way to kind of reconnect, you know, and that's always been something that I thought was really important about the work we do. One of the most important relationships that Sean and Banning cultivated with an African musician was with Thomas Mopfumo. Banning wrote a book about him called Lion Songs, which was the culmination of a 20-year friendship. This song is a recording that Sean and Banning made at one of Mopfumo's shows at SOB's in New York City in 1989. <laughs> Thomas Mafumo is, he's kind of like the Bob Marley or Fela Kuti of Zimbabwe in the sense that he was both the, the sort of creator or shaper of a music style, but also a very important political voice. He was, during the 70s, during the war, he wrote songs that did two things. They, they both brought traditional music that had been very much stigmatized by missionaries because it was connected with spiritual practices that Christian missionaries found horrifying. And so they stigmatized the music and everything that came with it. This is religion of the Shona people that's connected with the Mbira. And then at the same time, these songs were bringing Shona language. And so because the Shona language is a very sort of mysterious elliptical language, he was able to, first of all, take this music and adapt it to a rock and roll band. Basically, in the bridge, it was just a guitar band. They had a brass section, they had two guitars, bass and drums, singers, that's it. And, and they were, but they were reshaping this traditional music and now singing in Shona in ways that gave a lot of encouragement to people to join the, the struggle ag and against the, the white Rhodesian regime. And 
for a long time, this kind of went unnoticed by the authorities. So, so he was really seen as kind of the muse of that that very harsh, bitter war. And then in the years after independence in 1980, he created this whole new kind of evolution of the music by bringing the actual Lumbiras into the band. And by the, by the late 80s, when we first went there, it was like this folk orchestra with, with, with Lumbiras and guitars and, and horns and dancers and 17 people on stage. Oh and, and, and he was wrote just such beautiful songs. I mean, a really masterful lyricist and, and, and melody writer. And he would draw from so many different sources, not just the Mbira. I mean, he had like South African jazz and a little bit of Congolese music and other kinds of sort of country musics and, and other traditions from Mozambique and Zimbabwe. He was a real synthesizer. Thomas from his music, some of the most powerful, uh, ecstatic, I, that is the word for it, ecstatic musics in Africa or anywhere in the world that I know, and there's something about, you know, the, the songs start slowly and build, and you're, you know, you're not understanding the show enough, but, you know, the music communicates very directly. So on that first trip, I had already really cottoned on to to him because right just shortly after discovering Johnny Clegg, Sean was in London and sent me a cassette and, and, and it had, you know, the Mahatela Queens from South Africa and Taboule from Congo and various things, King Sonia Day. But then it had a few tracks from Thomas Mafumo and the guitar playing, which was basically imitating the sound of the Mbira just knocked me out I, and I, I, I started playing along with those records and, 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 and then we started going down to, to uh, Washington DC where there was an African record store and just I would buy every Mapfumo thing that was there and so by the time we went there I was really primed to meet this guy he was like one of the people who had really stood out in my imagination and the, the band at that time had never been to the U.S. and they really, really wanted to come. They were hungry for it. And we were so knocked out by their shows. They were incredibly nice to us, first of all. They just invited us into their world and we were like family. And, and, and that, was, that was just very charming and very sweet. I mean, most of the musicians we met were really open and friendly, but this was like on another level of just embrace. And we... Sean had a connection to an organization that was looking for bands to tour, and after we saw them a couple of times, Sean made a call, and that led to their first U.S. tour. So we became really tight from that point, and when I went back to, to on my second trip to Africa, I spent a month in Zimbabwe and spent a lot of time with that band and hung out with guitar players, learning stuff from them. And I think it was at that moment when I realized that this was this was this needed to be a book you know this guy's story was so interesting and had all these different dimensions to it because right around that time was the point when he started to really annoy the Mugabe regime Mugabe had become president in uh, in, in 1980 and and by the late 80s he was the corruption of his regime was becoming apparent and Thomas who had been kind of the muse of the revolution would now became the critic of its result and that 
was a very dicey position to be in, but it was also just fascinating to me as a writer because it was like this whole transformation, turning, tur turning of the tables, and all mixed up with this incredibly beautiful music. I just thought, okay, this has to be a book. It took a good 20 years after that to actually <laughs> produce the book, but I did, and in that time, he went into exile. He now lives, in, 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 since 2004, he's lived full-time in Oregon with his family, and it's, it's tough, you know. It's a, it's a really difficult um, situation to be in, but, you know, through many, many adventures, we've, he's, we've become really good friends. Publishing that book was hard. It was hard for him to see... You know, it was just a different kind of book than I'm sure he imagined because it's very honest and it deals a lot with people who, you know, had beefs with him and were critical of various things. Michelle was talking earlier about Franco and the cars and that. There's always, the, you know, it's true of bands everywhere, but African bands, the leader tends to develop a very, very large ego and a great sense of entitlement to everything that happens. And, and so... It's a very common dynamic that musicians feel wronged and abused, and even great musicians, you know. And so that wonderful family atmosphere that we experienced in 1988 became much more frayed as Zimbabwe's economy tanked during the 90s and into the 2000s. And so, you know, and I, I, I was pretty unsparing in, 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 like, showing the full dimensions of this in the book, and for a while he was very angry at me. But we eventually made up, and now we're, we're friends again, so it's been a journey. Another one of the closest relationships that Sean and Banning built was with Johnny Clegg, a white South African who passionately and voraciously threw himself deep into Zulu culture as a teenager, through both music and dance. He later gained notoriety for combining the traditional Zulu music with modern pop. His band combined black and white musicians in the height of apartheid, which was a brave act of resistance. His music is full of heart, and you can hear the deeply rooted connection he has to African culture in his singing. This next song is a recording Sean and Banning made of Johnny playing guitar and singing a traditional Zulu song in his home in Johannesburg in 1987. <laughs> He was sort of, in a lot of ways, like the voice of, of the freedom struggle of apartheid in South Africa. He was an important voice because he was white. Yeah. And, yeah. and he was willing to, to take great risk, to put himself in great danger, to go and be with his Zulu brothers to practice with his dance group and, yeah. you know, when he was a teenager and whatever. Um, and has such awesome stories about that, yeah. too. Um, but he's someone who, like, he's African. But he's white, you know, like it's such a rare, special combo that that allows um, two worlds to come together in a way that's actually like really beautiful because it's through culture. It's um, true. Yeah. He was important to me, too, because even before Afropop was thought of and and we, we went to Africa when I was living in Eugene, Oregon, playing with my my uh, reggae funk blues band, <laughs> a friend of mine 
from Wesleyan, who's a doctor, had been doing some work in South Africa, and she brought me an album of Johnny Clegg's. It was the Scatterlings album. Mm. And uh, and I became obsessed with it, particularly with the guitar playing, but also the, that deep Zulu vocal stuff. You know, it was very exciting to me, but I didn't really know, I had no idea where we were headed, you know, with, with this journey, yeah. you know. But, it, but I really loved that record, and it, it started me thinking about how wow, man, there's really cool music happening in Africa that we never hear, you know? And so, yeah, he was very important early on. Yeah, well, and then you got to, to meet him. Yeah, on the very first probably trip. Probably soon after that, right? In 88, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Johannesburg. Yeah. And he was such a great storyteller, and he, mm. and he, and he, he taught me some of that Zulu guitar stuff that I actually still play. And, yeah, yeah, that was really important. And the also, um, the, the dancing is mm. remarkable because there's a sort of certain... Zulu style of dancing where you kick your your leg way high. It's like how do you do that? And you smash it down. And um the backstory of that is so Johnny and his and his Zulu um bandsmates uh, who, as you say, would go into the townships where white and black bands were not supposed to Well, it was play. illegal. It yeah. was illegal. Oh, they had actually. shows close. And he now. got arrested yeah. how many times? Countless uh, times. Many a lot, times. A lot. Yes. Yeah. There's a video on YouTube of Johnny when he was younger doing the wild and powerful Zulu war dance that Sean described earlier. The link to the video is in the show notes. They would throw their leg way up in, like almost doing the splits, but like bending forward with their, like their trunks or whatever, and then slam it down on the ground. And I guess it's like a war dance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's about, like, that actually about smashing the skull of your enemy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's a good way to finish off Yeah, the Zulu are foe, not gentle. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up listening to Johnny Clegg with my family. His music was profoundly important and formative for me. Last October, Sean, Banning, and I went to see him perform at B.B. King's in New York City. This was part of his goodbye tour, so it was a deeply moving and joyous but emotional experience. Well, the thing is that Johnny was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer um, a couple of years ago, and he's now been through chemotherapy twice, and basically his prospects aren't good. But he was in remission, and so he decided to do a world tour, a farewell tour, and kind of make this show that kind of summed up his life. And, you know, I mean, we've met so many artists over the years, and sometimes they kind of remember you and they're friendly. Sometimes they don't remember you at all. (laughs) But Johnny has always been really present, you know, and, and he remembers right back to that first time we met. And so he, he really, uh, he, he treat he treats he treats us like friends, you know, which is which is nice, and 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 he and he's given us some just really spectacular, very deep interviews over the years, and uh, so in this case, he was he was he was singing this one of the songs that he often ends his show with, Dela, which is a really oh. a beautiful song, uh, and it's kind of a song about about longing and under it has this this great line I, I think i know why the dog howls at the moon yes um uh. which is and then and then he and then he sings this incredibly moving chorus and everyone's singing along and um and then and then it has this refrain i burn for you and right when he hit it he spotted me in the audience and he pointed right at me yeah and, and said i, I burn, burn for, for you. you yeah and i was like oh my god <laughs> that was that was powerful yeah yeah, yeah. how did how did that hit you well, I, I I was just really touched by it, and mm-hmm. and and kind of it sent shivers down my spine. I mean, really, it was it was um, beautiful. 
You're listening to A Show of Hearts. I'm Rosemary Pritzker. If you're inspired by what you're hearing, grab your phone, take a screenshot of this episode, open Instagram, and post the photo to your friends. Tell them why you love what you're hearing and how you're going to apply it to your life. And then use hashtag A Show of Hearts. Three years ago, we were planning a trip to Tanzania together when suddenly Afropop received a Peabody Award, which is like the radio version of an Oscar. This foiled our travel plans, but it was a very happy surprise. All of a sudden, we were getting calls from all over the world. Yeah. Be coming <laughs> it's a good problem to have. No. no but, the P- but I should, I just mentioned something um, about the Peabody, and you're right. It is, it is, it's like the Oscars for radio, television, uh, and internet, and films. Okay. You're competing a, a, in a pretty big field. Yeah. Uh, and I had dutifully applied for the Peabody year every year, year really? for 26 oh, yeah. years. I didn't and know that. <laughs> yeah, you have to. It gets a process. You have to pick. A oh yeah, you have, you have to pay four hundred bucks, and you have to fill out the application. You have to guess which. And you have to pick one show. Which show is going to be? Oh god. Anyway, yeah. so every year I'd be like, ah, I don't want to waste four hundred dollars. But okay, I'll do it. And so, uh, did it for for that year, and and got the call. And my god, because usually you get a Peabody for a film or a radio show or something. We got. Peabody for 27 years of work. So all those years of applying. <laughs> <laughs> Counted for something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so, yeah. Right, right. That's great. Yeah. Um, so the, the moment that you found out that you'd won, what was that like? Oh, oh I, I thought story. I thought it was like, <laughs> I thought the guy who was working here at the time uh, as our director of new media, Sam Backer, uh, I thought he was pulling my leg. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, like Sam, what, what are you talking about? It's like, what do you, what do you mean? And, and then, then it became real, and actually got on the phone with the director of the Peabody's, who confided in me that he was really kind of lobbying heavily for us. Oh. <laughs> and so I'm, so but but immediately, you know, I, I'm pretty savvy about uh, publicity and marketing and that kind of thing. So I realized we just got to run with this. We got to tell everybody. We got to like have a. Uh, a celebration, you know, with the Ford Foundation actually um, uh, hosted us on the 11th floor looking out on the East River, and we had musicians. You know, it was, it was wonderful. You know, one, one would hope that, that foundations and companies would line up, you know, afterwards. And, you know, that didn't happen. But uh, anyway, it gives us great. Every, every, every time we uh, write about ourselves on, you know, on the Internet or whatever, mm-hmm. it's... Um, Afropop Worldwide, the Peabody Award-winning yeah. public radio show. Yeah. So that that is stuck to us forever. Yeah, you know. well, that's great. Yeah, uh, when in, in when, my obituary, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> when, when that, bigger than your name. <laughs> when that news came through, I was actually on a ship in uh, Praia Arbor in, in Cape Verde, and I had I, I had my job was to do lectures and to arrange for concerts, and there was a an artist, Zé Luis, a singer who was supposed to come on the ship and perform. And they hadn't showed up, and it, it was late, and it was just kind of becoming stressful. So I, I ran down and got my laptop and opened it up to find the, the contact number of the person that I was supposed to be talking to. And there was this email from Sean saying that we just won the Peabody. And it was, <laughs> it was just 
it was just surreal. I mean, that was a wonderful day in a number of ways from that point on. But, but it was funny because the, the director of entertainment there was this British woman, and she had never heard of Afropop, had no idea. Didn't even really know what a Peabody was. But she, I, you know, I mentioned it to her, and she immediately got on her computer. And the funny thing was that the other person who got the Institutional Award that year was David Attenborough. You know the 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 naturalist filmmaker, and he was like a god to her. And it was like you won the same award as Attenborough, you know. So it was a funny day, but boy, yeah, it was real high. Yeah. Well, and what did it feel like to have that long of a body of work recognized in that way? You know, after all all the effort and love and sweat that you put into yeah. all that work. Overdue. Well, it's, it's a weekly <laughs> it's a weekly radio series. I kind of say it's like we're writing a chapter in a never-ending novel. You know, because there's so much. There's you could have five, ten lives and never finish this job. Yeah. You know, and we get to go to the coolest places. You know, and whether it's Cuba or Brazil or even just do the research from here and do his historical research. I asked Banning what he wants his readers to take away from his book about Thomas Mapfumo. Well, I guess I guess the fundamental one would just be the power of music. That's that's the right music for the right time and place to actually create change. Um, I also think, I mean, Sean mentioned the ecstatic quality of the music. That's partly because the Mbira part of it, which is maybe it's only like 40% of his repertoire, but it's some of the most powerful and memorable material. It's drawing directly from a tradition where music actually brings about possession. And this is something you find all over the world. You find it in Sufi music and in, in, in you know, North Africa and, and the Middle East. You find it in, uh, in Cuban music, Peru, so many places. Music is used as a way of you know, Sean talked about the journey of the shaman. It is a shamanistic kind of thing. You're using the music to to actually transcend reality. In the case of the Shona with the Mbira, they conceptualize it as bringing about possession of an ancestor so that you can actually communicate with that ancestor and and figure out some problem you're having or, 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 or resolve some situation or conflict. That's another fascinating thing about a lot of African music is the way it forces you to reconceptualize the whole way that you think about music. Well, and culture, not just like mm-hmm. the whole way you think about music, culture, um, ancestry, because the, the purpose of the Mbira is to call on the ancestors. And as a result, all, all of these people in Zimbabwe know who their ancestors are going way back. Um, which I don't, I don't know that about my, you know, like I know a, a few generations back, but I think a lot of us Americans like don't no. have that kind of connection to our ancestry. Right, right. You know, we can go to ancestry.com, but it, you know, it's not the same <laughs> thing as like, you know, like how, taking on the spirit of, you know. And, you know, it's not actually everyone in Zimbabwe who knows that because right. this is again, part of Thomas's big crusade is that so much because of the very harsh nature of the Rhodesian regime and it's, mm. it's, it's insistence on interfering with culture. That music remains stigmatized for a lot of Zimbabweans. A lot of the urbanized Zimbabweans have this very ambivalent relationship with that kind of culture. Like it's, it's something that you do when you go home to the village at Christmas, but 
in the city, you wouldn't want to be associated with it. So it's a whole cultural divide. But that thing about ancestry, that's actually even more true in the other music I've spent a lot of time with, which is the griot music of, of West Africa, like Mali, where, again, it's a very elaborate, beautiful musical tradition. And, but the whole content of the lyrics in this case it's not about possession or anything mystical, but it is very specifically about recounting history and talking about ancestors. And a good griot has to know the stories of all the major families so that if they're at a wedding and, and you know, a, there's a person who's assigned to know each family that comes in. Okay, so the Jalos have just arrived. So then the griot has to know what are all the stories I have to tell and what how can I relate that to the present? And there's this whole lyrical improvisation aspect. But as a result of that, I was just so amazed when I lived in Mali in the mid-90s that little kids just knew all this history, you know? And that's not, it's not true here, but it's also not true in a lot of parts of, of Africa, even in Zimbabwe, you know? It's just like an amazing power of music to keep people connected with their history and their identity and that makes them despite abject poverty and horrible problems incredibly proud and secure and kind of confident people well i mean imagine it think about the difference between us in our culture in school having to learn our history like practically shoved down our throats just <laughs> so we can answer test questions right Compared to in certain African cultures, I'm not going to say it's all of Africa because there's no. so many different cultures, yeah. but where it's something that they learn from the culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's going to that's gonna stick with you so much more because it, it has soul. Yeah. You know? And yeah. also remember that uh, in terms of Mali, we, we spend a lot of time in Mali, by the way. We just love, 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 love Mali. It's... Um, Amazing artists, uh, amazing people, amazing stories. But anyways, um, the resource goes back to the 13th century. I mean, people, the artists who are the keepers of the history, they can tell stories from the founding of the uh, of the empire of Mali, who was Sunjata Keita. And um, that's pretty amazing. Abani can play Sunjata Keita wherever he goes in a Malian context. And that's, that is the story, that is the song of Sunjata. And anybody can play that song. And there's another song, Masana Sise, who is, uh, is, is about a, uh, a businessman who was um, a great patron of the arts. That guy really spent his money well because his <laughs> that song gone, is played but... <laughs> all the time. Yeah, it's on constant, uh, you know, heavy duty uh, play. Yeah. And uh, that's that's something that, you know, like you say, is very special. There's a passage in Banning's book in which he says, "No workday is too long." No rain too cold, nor sun too hot, no elder too mean, as long as everything ends with the dancing and songs, laughter and moonlight, and the all-encompassing embrace of a big family. Couldn't have said it better myself. You did say it better. <laughs> I asked if there are any stories that illustrate that. In 2001, we did a tour of Madagascar. We traveled with um, Anch of the band Tarika and Tarika Sammy before that. And she had arranged this kind of cultural trek. And we were working with a tour company that was really not used to people coming for culture. They were all about, you, you take the people, you put them in the four-wheel drive and take them to the beach and to see the lemurs. And she had arranged this 
very circuitous route that involved lots of trips down long dirt roads. And, and, and in one case, we went to this village that was famous for making these instruments, these sort of ukulele-like instruments called kabosi. And it was a full moon night. And we were going down these roads, and these drivers were getting really, uh, like, what the hell are we doing? And they just were getting, they were really starting to get bulky, you know. And then, and we got to this village, and, and you know, we all got out, and, and suddenly we were just totally surrounded by the village, and all these people were playing these instruments and dancing, and, and you know, old women and little children, and, and just this, it was just the sweetest thing. No one wanted to leave. And even the drivers after that. They were like, okay, you know, now we get what this is all about. I don't yeah. know, that's one that just popped into my mind. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox, though, because most of the, much of the time their lives are so hard and they have to deal with so much difficulty. Um, and the fact that they could be as open-hearted, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's not true everywhere. You can have bad experiences, but, but in general, very warm people and very, very curious and open and welcoming. And, and also they have very strong family structures, you know, so that there's a real, if you know a musician or some head of family accepts you as a friend, then the whole family just completely mm. is drawn to you and oh. you're, you're, you're in, you know. And, mm. and I think for Peace Corps people, particularly who live with families in that, and, you know, I, we've had experiences like this too, uh, it changes you. It, it really opens your heart. Another one that I think of is um, we did this, as Benny was saying, um, kind of Afropop lovers tours, uh, two to Senegal, two to uh, Mali, uh, one to Madagascar, and four to Cuba. And anyway, the one that uh, I remember was, we called it Molly Magic 2000, mm. January 2000. And uh, uh, we had about 15, 20 or so travelers, and uh, along with Bonnie Raitt. And she just fit in beautifully. And, and uh, oh, Habib Kwate, by the way. Do you know Habib Kwate? Oh, yeah. I heard him play in Boulder. Okay. I love him. <laughs> Habib Kwate was, yeah. was traveling with us. Also, uh, uh, Ali Fakature flew with us to Timbuktu. And so so Ali comes into the town and, and he, he chooses four sheep. You know, I'm buying those sheep, slaughter them, we're eating them tonight. And we just had this amazing feast. We went up to the festival in the desert you might have heard of. Uh, which was in 2003, north of Timbuktu, and our our uh, our friends there were performing, and we they they let us, um, you know, people kind of lounged about in tents, you know, between the performances, and, and so they let us come in and uh, and record uh, acoustic, basically acoustic sessions, and so because they knew us and because they trusted us, and and then they, then they introduced us to the friends that we didn't know, you know, the musician friends that we didn't know. And 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 uh, kind of just just endless examples like that, uh, where yeah, basically music just is is such the connector. You know, if you're if you, you know, when foreigners go to Africa to do development, to build things, to tell them how to do things, and you know, and that's all well and good. And in, in Africa needs help, you know, certainly. But we come there because we love their music. So you know, it's, it's just a natural connection, like you know. Oh, great. Well, sure, let's have a concert. <laughs> well, and, and isn't that a great way to actually help their culture by um, changing people's misconceptions about what Africa is? Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. It's always been 
important to us. But that festival in the desert in 2003, that was particularly, that was definitely one of the highs of, of all time because the festival itself was really put on by and for the Tuareg nomads. It was organized around a gathering that, that they already have. You know, they're, they're very widely dispersed people living in the desert. So these moments when they can all come together are incredibly important. This is where courtships begin and so many things, you know, you're seeing old people, friends and family. And so, and we as, you know, white Americans and Europeans were in a, we're in a minority. We were sort of like 300 of, of 2,000 people there. And all the rest of them were Mali, and most of them Tuaregs on their camels, you know. And so it was just great to be interacting in that environment, you know. Everyone was, again, really friendly and really curious and really uh, open, but it was definitely their thing. It was a very special moment. It was, and it's particularly poignant given how much things have deteriorated there since, but that's we, another story. We made uh, this the first and last place we ever made a movie. <laughs> yes. Was the no, a real movie. Festival in the Desert, the Tent Sessions. Yes, you can find some of it on YouTube. I just wanted to thank you guys for stoking the flames of my already existing passion for African music and everything about Africa um, and the amount of things that it's that it's opened up and brought into my life and so I just I wanted to ask you guys what gifts has Afropop brought into your lives mm. oh my god so many um, for me I think it's really been the greatest gift has been the ability to step beyond the role of being a journalist and to become a participant. And for me, it's it's been playing music and the opportunity to actually learn the music well enough that I can be accepted as a musician. And when that happens, you know, I've I've had the amazing privilege of being on the stage playing with you know Thomas Mafumo, the Rail Band, Sally Sidibe. Uh, the um, window Colosoy of, uh, of of Congo, and and you know that's just like such a high, you know. And the thing is that once you have that experience, people treat you differently, and suddenly you're you're you do develop a different kind of friendship with people than if you're just you know interviewing them or filming them or photographing them. You know, you you become really connected, and that. I think that really those two things the, the the participation through playing music and the friendships that result from that that's those are the greatest gifts for me. Mm. That's great. Well, first of all, fantastic music. Right. You know, and to actually be able to go into a musical scene and in a very sensual uh real uh auditory and social way is there's nothing like it. And I think of Kinshasa, like we talked about. I think of uh, Mali, my God, um, uh, Harare, Zimbabwe. So you know, when you travel, it's like almost like your your life becomes uh, triple speed. You're you're there's so much stimulation. You're you're absorbing so much. You're meeting people and talking. That it's like like your your, your life is supercharged, uh, and and that's uh, a real gift right there um the people that we've met the you know wonderful artists that we've met many of whom have become friends and uh, 
they oftentimes will see us more in New York than we will see them in Africa now because they got the gig. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I think I could die right now and feel like I've lived a fulfilled life. Uh. And that's, or I could like, sometimes I'm taking off in a plane and said, I, I, this plane could crash and I'd be okay. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry. Some people would miss me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, but I, I mean, have feel this, that way too, actually. In a, I in a sense, like, sometimes. you know, I, I grew up Catholic. Hence and the concentration on death. <laughs> Thank you. No, but, but, you know, Catholics, you know, the ethic is you do something good for your community. The idea that you could die and feel good about your life, that's, that's something special. Before we parted ways, we played a song together. This is Banning on Guitar, me singing, and Sean playing Shakers. The song is called Chikende, and it's a drumming and dance song from the Shona tribe of Zimbabwe. Banning and I each learned it at different times from our teacher and dear friend, Chartwell Dutiro, a master Mbira player who traveled the world as a part of Thomas Mapumo's band. To learn more about Sean and Banning's work, visit afropop.org and find the Afropop Worldwide podcast in iTunes. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to A Show of Hearts. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe in iTunes and share it with your favorite people. Visit our website, ashowofhearts.com, where you can sign up for emails and explore all our episodes in depth. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at A Show of Hearts. Remember to choose courage, even when it's scary, and join me in igniting the world with our hearts. Ba 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 bang